Hey everybody, if you enjoy the podcast and the content it provides, be sure to hop over and check out the community. The community is an exclusive members website that is just an extension of what we do here in July at the Central Virginia Sport Performance Seminar. What it is is a combination of video lectures, a coach's corner with your Monday morning take-home information, and a forum where you can talk about anything and everything related to the field of strength and conditioning. In the community, you'll find content added each month from some of the top practitioners in the world, ranging from PhDs to high-level coaches, bringing you exactly what they're doing with their athletes or their research at the present moment. On top of that, an additional discussion by coaches bringing you that Monday morning information, things that you can add to your training program right away. Tying that in with the opportunity to discuss with coaches around the world in the forum on anything and everything from the topics addressed in these presentations to whatever you're seeing in your daily life as a coach. If this sounds like the right thing for you and your staff, go ahead and hop over to cvasps.com community and try it out for 48 hours for just a dollar. If you like it, you're signed up, ready to roll, and you're jumping into all the great content added each month. If not, feel free to go ahead and cancel at any time. No questions asked. We're really excited about what we're building in the community and hope you are too. Go ahead and hop over to cvasps.com slash community and check it out today. All right. Thank you for turn, tuning into this week's podcast with Cal Dietz from the University of Minnesota talking about his latest article, Single Leg versus Double Leg Training, Addressing the Controversy. Uh, first, Cal, let me say thanks for coming on, bud. Appreciate you taking the time to do this. Anytime, Jay. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and chat with you. And um, I just love uh, just love getting knowledge off your site, and I, I appreciate uh, all the work you put into it. Well, I appreciate that, bud. You know, you've been a big contributor to us and helping us out both with the seminar. Uh, and just to remind the listeners out there that Coach Dietz will be presenting once again uh, this year at the 2012 seminar. Um, which is the lineup's going to be absolutely fantastic. And we've got one more speaker that we're still going to announce um, in the next coming weeks. But let's get to the topic at hand here, Cal. Uh, let's, let's go over this article a bit. And let's first just, uh, if you wouldn't mind, talk about why you selected this. Uh, you know, this has been kind of a, as you said, addressing the controversy, kind of a, uh, a buzz topic of late. So if you could just touch upon that a little bit, that'd be great. Well, you know, I didn't back it with any research or arguments in, in any way except the fact that um, realizing, you know, through the years as I look through my athletes, my personal testing and and uh, track results too, that a majority of my athletes, if, uh, well, all of my athletes that had started on double leg um, exercises or eventually got to that point of training pure double leg when I say pure double leg, basically in our program, not necessarily only double leg, because all my programs essentially use single leg work too. But uh, And then we're forced to do primarily only single leg work for a majority of the year. I found it just seemed to be in the back of my head and my assistant's head that they, they couldn't reach their testing numbers that they had prior to that. And usually within one or two years of training, um, what happened was they reached their peak numbers and they often couldn't mimic them or actually dropped dropped off on their testing numbers when they couldn't do the double leg uh, back squat or front squat or, or leg press or deadlift or uh, cleans and snatches 
compared to doing single leg work. So, uh, and I felt just obligated to maybe bring this out. Not that I'm, you know, telling that the other method doesn't work because you can make your athletes better by using only single leg stuff. And when I peak my athletes, I actually primarily use single leg stuff for sports, um, single leg lifts, I should say. But, however, I, to build the base and put the foundation down, I found that double leg wasn't uh, wasn't nearly um, something that could be left out of my athlete's program and not have them reach the highest levels of their potential. That's fantastic. You know, it's. I think that that's great, you know, because you are using everything, so to say, and it's not to eliminate one or the other, just showing that they both need to be used. I think it's something that a lot of people are missing the boat on, and, and that's really a great point. Um, I mean, yeah, one of the things I didn't even really address in the article, it's essentially the the hormonal response that exists. Um, you know, there's there's a number of things, but ultimately when you, you go through an extremely hard uh, double leg workout, that, that the adaptions that take place in the body and, and the release of testosterone and growth hormone are uh, obviously that can be found in, in our in a, within our science literature, and I I mean the whole systemic aspect of of what squats do to the body or or uh, double leg work due to the body just due to the due to the load and the stress that's being placed on it is uh, something yeah. that has to be definitely has to be looked upon, especially when you're building your base and not necessarily at the uh, end of your training cycle, but at least in the beginning. Right, without a doubt. Now, you're kind of piggybacking that, since you, you already were talking about testing results and things like that, uh, you did mention female athlete as an example. Um, can you touch upon that experience, working with her, you know, and how things changed both in her results and possibly in her performance and you know, you don't have to get into complete limitations, but what she could do and, and what you found ended up being limited in, you know, the thing that really matters, her, her actual sporting performance. Yeah, well, you know, in, in her, I won't uh, use her name, but uh, you know, she's a possible border borderline Olympian. And when this female came to me, she's the uh, just over six foot. And ultimately, you you know, you, her parents were great athletes, which uh, is obviously helps. And what we had was uh, she tested fairly well as a freshman. Surprisingly, as a, a six-foot freshman, you know, may not have the speed and agility. And, and I do a, a no-touch pro agility. When I say that, I don't force the hand down because what happens uh, really when they cut in, in their sport or change directions, their hand never goes to the ground. So, you know, ultimately, I, I use that as a specificity tool so when i test my pro agilities unless the athlete is getting tested on that in a particular combine or for pro agility or pro day or something like that i don't have the athletes do that because i never see that movement on the field so i don't do it in the uh in the uh the training so when we tested her we actually had her just do a foot pass the line when we do the pro agility she ran a four nine on her original coming in to uh my program and then after about 15 months it was she ended up running a uh, a 429 uh pro agility no touch with the hand which again understand just by teaching her to run the test correctly you can usually drop two tenths off would you not agree with me jay on that point 
Oh, yeah, completely. It, right, right. So maybe two to three tenths even, you know, and she didn't run it very well the first time and still ran a 4.9. So realistically, she became extremely strong. Biomechanically, she had long legs, but she, yet she was able to support her, her body weight of, I believe it was 175. 170. So she could change directions instantly. It was pretty amazing. And what happened, um, you know, after that 15 months, and we kept going. And those, unfortunately, the, the season started, so I couldn't test her much after that. But then, at the end of the second year of the uh, second year of season, which would have been about 20 months into the program, my program maybe 21 months, she had some wrist injuries, and they wouldn't let her hold a bar a certain way. And then uh, uh, shoulder. Maybe a, I believe it was a shoulder injury on the, the other side due to playing the sport. And what happened was we couldn't back squat her for the next year, year and a half, um, or even I think it's been about two now. They've okayed that uh, since then because she had wrist surgeries and so forth. And ultimately what, what took place was she, she trained just as hard. Uh, in theory, the maturational process has kept up and she should have been physically better but could not reproduce those efforts and the best we got out of her since was a four six five, I believe it was pro agility. So, and, and that's just a uh, basic example. We could uh, list other kids, but I mean, th- there's a absolute big difference between those two times, three tenths. And you know, like I said, I don't think motor skill or or learning skill was was part of the the test when she ran the four six five because she ran it very well. She'd always run it, and we'd actually even been practicing it because that's part of her testing protocols, but, uh, again, was unable to mimic what she did at her her best effort. And I truly believe the foundation of that is, you know, as as you as I mentioned in the article, her effort in a back squat, um, the brain and the nervous system is putting out so much effort and energy that it learns to fire at such a high capacity in short duration where... When, you know, I have this habit, too, of when I start to program single leg squats, you know, you may add some more. You're not doing singles, doubles, and triples by any means. You're not doing cluster work where the intensity of that squat is so hard and high, um, and they're focusing on pushing their feet through the ground, that you uh, you lose that intensity. And we all know from, from every aspect that when you – Intensity is a key factor from running intervals to um, increasing any type of uh, performance. That intensity is a key, and basically, it comes boils down to that the double leg squats are much more intense than the single leg squats. That's fantastic. And you know, you mentioned in the article that the other, excuse me, the other measurables um, were not as good as well. With you know, looking at the, the you mentioned the pro, but jumping activities and, and just linear sprinting as well. Um, and I guess it, it it just shows the importance of the actual general physical preparation that these kids need, and their really lack of training age shows that, and then this kid is a great example of that, that the general strength needs to be there on top of all the, you know, the hormonal and nervous system response that you get from the double effort or the double-legged exercises with the more intensive loading that if the kid's not improving, they're going to be diminishing. Yeah, I mean, essentially you could look at it on the uh, third year and fourth year of this this, this athlete's training. Like you said, I couldn't build the the, uh, the base to get that athlete to peak well 
because the base couldn't be the standard in the base couldn't be set as high as it was in the previous years of uh, training. You know, because essentially because they're you know they they didn't have the work capacity because she couldn't do the double leg work and, and the intensity at which she could work at with those um, with those lifts were uh, was taken away due to injury. So you're exactly right, Coach. That's great stuff, Coach. That's great stuff. Now we we kind of got into this, um, but let's let's get into how you how you you actually use the single leg work to assist with peaking. You, know, you you talked about that briefly. Um, if you couldn't touch upon, you know, I'm sure that some of the listeners may not have seen, you know, your presentations on, you know, the oscillating method and things like that. Can you touch upon how you look at these single leg exercises when you teach the when you actually teach the athlete for the competition? Well, um, I've, I've had some great success peaking. Let's say, just say, for example, in the track world, um, we found that, you know, pulling the squat anywhere from three to six weeks, depending on the particular athlete or the uh, the event, but short sprinters, maybe three to four weeks, and mid-distance guys, six weeks out. Um, that was my first experiment about nine, ten years ago when we'd pull our uh, – our uh, double leg work and squats out of the the workout and go to more single leg work, and we just found that then they transferred. It seemed to transfer into peaking for you know Big Ten championships or or uh, national regional championships, and so then what took place is just an experiment, uh, experimenting with that as as time went on and how can I make the single leg work more more specific, but yet uh, not lose let's say some more capacity. Uh, that's where my oscillatories came in, and I've actually switched the majority of my programming over to timed sets. So the athletes will uh, do an oscillatory single leg squat. Now, for the listeners that may not know, essentially you're going down to the bottom range of motion in the single leg squat, let's say, for example, or the split lunge or whatever you want to call it, and you're going up and down in the movement of about three to five inches, and you're moving as fast as you possibly can yeah, some of the athletes are even pulling their front foot off the ground and slamming it back down. It's a very, very violent movement, but essentially in five seconds, some of these athletes can get um, somewhere between 15 to 20 reps. So even in a short duration of a five-second lift, you get up to 20 reps, especially in my fast, re- very reactive athletes in the uh, in the weight room versus a single-leg squat. Let's say, for example, you might only get, you know, three reps if you're doing it very fast, maybe four. Does that make sense? Did I explain that oh, well enough? Completely. Yes, okay. completely. So, so then if you want to do complete some work capacity, I, I could push that set up to 15 seconds, depending on the day, and, and it would depend on how the uh, training plan works with the practice plan as far in regards to the coaches. But also um, a lot of things that I'll – I'll do is I try to keep uh, that single leg work at a lower um, time duration, under 10 seconds, because, again, a lot of things happen after 10 seconds. Obviously, you can start to get into lactate and uh, cortisol is released, which towards the end of the peaking cycle, you kind of want to limit. So from at least in the weight room anyway, I know coaches will keep pushing that lactate threshold and it'll cause uh, 
sympathetic dominance. It uh, it uh, releases other hormones or some biochemical things that that, that happen that may not be favorable. But uh, so I, I really regulate my sets based upon time at this particular time um, and during the peaking phase. So, um, but even then during the course of the year, you know, during my regular training sessions, when I'm doing back squat, I'll still do a, usually a single leg exercise, but then I just transfer all that over about six weeks out and we'll implement more oscillatory stuff, more high speed stuff. Um, when I say high speed, we've, we've talked, if you haven't seen my um, lectures, you know, I, I spend most of my time below 50% and it's all done at max effort. Um, a lot of it can be basically considered a plyometric in most capacity and I will go um, use that as my peaking method because again if you're teaching the body to strain under heavy heavy intense loads then the body adjusts to that and you will actually uh, teach it to be slower you know Doc Yesis has always said that and it took it took a long time for that to sink in when he was telling me this but it, it actually sunk in and I, I began to see it and realize it yeah, without a doubt, and you know, the amount of time I've gotten to talk with Doc too is it's uh, <laughs> among many things. It's one that he's very, very adamant about. Is you know that the, the speed of movement is so important, and getting people to to specialize exercises, you know, where they're actually moving faster. And, and I think that the oscillatory method could definitely fit in as a specialized exercise when it comes to to these movement skills. Uh, and for the people listening out there, they can see the videos, I believe, at XL, the two letters, like extra large, XLathlete.com, if I'm not mistaken, Coach. Yeah, that, that's it. The, the, uh, uh, my website, uh, you can uh, see that. You can probably just Google it and pick it up at XLathlete.com. And I probably have about, I don't know, 70 or 80 different exercises of oscillatory movements itself, probably 1,200 videos of different exercises, some I probably never use, but um, in this peaking phase of using, uh, uh, as Doc mentioned, the, the high-speed movements, um, and it's hard to get away from the weight room. Doc's probably one of those guys that gets more away from the weight room when you get more specific, but ultimately, with uh, as strength coaches, we, we, we do have to have, we have young athletes, we've got to keep them in the weight room and keep their strength uh, gains and not lose that during the course of the year as much as possible. But uh, like I said, again, Doc was very, uh, it was very beneficial to talk to Doc and about straining and keeping my athletes with a high speed. I mean, some of the things Doc has thrown my way from, well, you know, everybody, people talk about uh, the auto-regulation and so forth and acts like it's a new thing. But the, uh, if you read Doc's Soviet sports reviews, Jay, in 1965, the Soviets had a, uh, clinic on uh, cybergenetics, which is a control of the human organism and or machine organism. Um, I guess it wouldn't be an organism, but the machines and, and organisms. And essentially they talked about a control system at that point. And Doc wrote about it. Uh, I believe it was in the 70s. But, I mean, yeah. it just tells you so many people are talking about things that uh, are old news. And, and the Soviets realized that in the 70s, too, that the strain, too much straining could uh, teach the nervous system to uh, move slower. So we're, 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 we're going to catch up. We, uh, I feel we are. I don't know when, but we will. Yeah. It may be a long time coming, but I think eventually we'll, we'll be on the same page as all of them. But, <laughs> you know, 
Yeah. And I think, too, that the other thing that's really important, you know, when it comes to as the preparation level of an athlete increases, you know, with the oscillatory method is the fact that it, it teaches that contract and relax, which is, you know, piggybacking off of just the speed of movement. It, it, it may be even more so to help assist in the development of, you know, if we use a kind of cliche term, game speed with, you know, the student athletes we work with and, you know, the Olympians and the pro guys that you work with because you're only going to go as fast as you, you relax. And the ability to turn on and turn off faster is going to turn over faster, you know. So it's it's really some some interesting, great stuff. It's it's something that I would recommend people definitely looking into. Yeah, well, the the thing about um, I may have an article for you soon, Coach. If not, I'll be have something for you to reference. But ultimately, um, by doing those oscillatory movements again, hopefully you can. Uh, uh, people have seen my video, but ultimately. Um, with the we call it the antagonistic facilitation specialized method, so that when uh, you're doing an oscillatory movement on the bench press, you pull your you use your lats to pull the bar to you, which causes your uh, tricep or your chest muscles to relax, and then you instantly stop the bar with your chest muscles, which causes your lats to re to relax, and then this this is a, a cycle that keeps going on and off. But again, you you teach your muscles to relax and shut off. And yes, uh, as Medvedev's research in the 60s showed that that was the elite athlete that separated them from the sub-level elite was the, uh, the ability to relax their muscles. And um, now is that done by work capacity and motor skill, um, which I believe is part of it. Um, there's some things with the sarcoplasmic reticulum and oxidative work, which will cause a greater release in calcium. But Again, the, the nervous system has to shut off, and that's, again, a learned motor skill, I truly believe. And, you know, this this this, event, this gets somewhat complicated, but and maybe beyond the realms of this podcast, but ultimately uh, I believe that they're all motor skills, the foundation of them. And to be able to teach your athlete that is, is of vital importance just through – it's essentially a muscle re-education, too, if you really look at it in the simplest forms. You're teaching the muscles, so if your if your quad contracts, your your hamstring's not working against it. Essentially, is what you're looking at. That's awesome. You know, it's it really is important, and I think that the the re-education of the you know the the muscular the nervous system's connection to the muscles, I think, is a great way to put it because you are teaching motor skills even when you're lifting and. It all ties together. When you're straining and going slow, you're you know you're teaching the body to slow down a bit. You know, and it's you got to train fast to be fast, and you have to train the muscles to react the way that they need to react in the sporting movements. So teaching to contract and relax, you know, by pulling and pushing in the opposite direction to make everything do what it's supposed to do. I think that you know you hit the nail right on the head with that. Yeah. I mean, that's the hopes. So just trying to make them a little bit faster, a little bit better. Now, it, to kind of piggyback into that, there's one thing that we've talked about, and you kind of touched upon because you, you talked about peaking with your track athletes, that, you know, you have the luxury to have there in Minnesota, and that is to have the track and field team to be under your supervision. And you've talked about a couple times now in, in the last podcast and this one about how the the track team is, is sort of your guinea pig work. Um, 
So the people understand that, and I think that this is something really unique with what you do, Coach, and really a great point to bring to people's attention with, with how you develop your methods is, you know, the, why the track team? Well, you, you essentially, I mean, track is the most, um, I guess, fundamentally sound sport to the others that we have, essentially, because the running's involved, obviously. Now, there is throwing and uh, different forms of throwing and then jumping, obviously. So those are the basic fundamental biomechanic movements. Um, I also would place swimming in there just from a, I guess, physiology aspect. Um, track would be more biomechanical. But, again, these two sports are are completely measurable. Okay, if you're doing something wrong, it will show up. And, and understand, in my programs, when I stress these athletes, I... I essentially write high-volume programs. So if you're making a mistake in a high-volume program, the proof comes out in the pudding, per se, okay? Because you, the results, something's wrong. You start to get hamstring problems. Some, some, Something's not going right. The athlete's training, and it instantly shows up. Uh, their flying 30s aren't affected, or something's wrong there. The coach would come back to me and say, hey, this isn't working. Um, two weeks now, we've had poor times on our flying 30s. Uh, you know, they feel stiff. They're not recovering. It may be something we're doing too, uh, uh, that's, that's too much. But ultimately, we figured out, we've adjusted over the years, and essentially get results. I've had some great results with some, obviously, you know, you talk even about winning Big Ten titles, where my track team, we, we've won a number of those. But ultimately, uh, with swimming, too, we've had a great swimming program, a great track program. But my coaches believe in what I do and always trying to find new methods. Now, there's been years, actually one of my best years with one of my teams, we uh, we had the most lifetime best ever, but we only took third in the Big Ten with the year before we'd won it. And you you realize at that point, that's not, um, that's not a bad year. It's actually maybe one of your best because when you can get 90% of your kids to reach lifetime PRs, I believe it was 92 then you know that you're doing the right things in coaching. The year before, you win the Big Ten title and only 60, 65% of your team hit lifetime PRs. Well, that's actually pretty good in those, in those events, in those track and field and, and swimming. That's actually real good. 65 is great considered. But ultimately, you had better athletes and recruits than the other team. Okay, but the year that we took third, we hit a higher level and we we implemented some new methods, um, sought out more restoration for the kids, and they actually found out some, you know, more guys hit 92. They found some better peaking methods, and 90, 90 to 92% of kids hit lifetime PRs. That's your best year, but you still only took third. So a lot of people wouldn't look at it as your best year, but as a coach, you know, and, and, and it's not me. majority of this stuff is our coaches. I just work with them on their methods in regards to placing the weight room and everything within there. But these sports, everything's measurable. So if you get results, and if you really look at it, like hockey, you can make your team hot. I've seen it. I've, I've heard of people, their hockey team got slower. They didn't get better. But the, the athletes have a great year because there's so many dynamics from play, preparation, um, the way the team, the game flows, if your goaltender's good, all these other dynamics. Yeah, I was going to say, a good goaltender fixes everything. 
Yeah, I mean, hockey comes down to three things, goaltending, goaltending, and goaltending, okay? If they can't score, <laughs> can't lose. I mean, it's that simple. But the dynamics in hockey, the dynamics in basketball, you know how it goes, Coach, especially on home court advantage and, and everything. I mean, there's so many more dynamics that we can't measure things with. Now, we can measure our testing results, but the coaches don't get to test us weekly, and that's a unique thing about track and field and swimming. Like, you know, um, these kids, if they have a meet, essentially they're getting tested. I mean, that's realistically what you're looking at. That's And that's such an awesome point and, and something that I think really and truly makes your method unique is the fact that it, you do look at that and that it's, it, it's all based on the fact that you, you can't lie to a laser timer and you, you can't lie to a touch wall in the water and it's I think that that's something that, that really separates you, Coach, and, and how you look at that is, is determining for, well, you for know, you know, a better way said what works and what, what doesn't work as well. Yeah, and, and, I mean, you can't base it on a weekly basis because, like, there's there's weeks in the year, let's say on my track training cycle, 7, 8, week 9, uh, week 7, 8, 9, and 10, they are literally shot. Okay, and then there's a recovery week, and um, but but I mean I know these kids are shot. The coach knows they're shot, and we've planned that that overtraining. Okay, so you can't necessarily weekly have PRs, you know, and and the coach's training is ramped up. My training's being pushed. These guys are laying their foundations for week seven, eight, nine, ten in the off season, and because then you have weeks eleven, twelve, thirteen with us, maybe fourteen at the the first semester, they go home for break, and then we start the in-season track. So essentially, that you know those, those weeks I spoke of, the seven through ten, are very tough. You can't you can't have PRs every every time. Um, you're just hoping to hold them together essentially. But then things should start to develop weeks eleven, uh, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen in during the course of the semester, and then try to use your measurements off kids that you know are pretty sound. I mean. If I if I measured uh, some of my kids that, that let's say they they go out too much, well every Monday they're going to be shot. Why? Because they party two days on the weekend. You know you can't do so. You can't make your measurements off kids like that. They're still they're still um, uh, college kids. Uh, one of one of the funniest jokes. My work capacity day for baseball was after the the uh, Thursday night bing, uh, wings and beer night. Honestly, that's that's how I programmed for them. I knew that they were going out to, to ten set wings and 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 uh, pitcher beer night, so I, I just did work capacity the next day, kind of flush it out of them. I did all my quality work before that, so I mean that's what you deal with in college. Sometimes you fall into the right category, sometimes um, you don't get the what you want, but ultimately you have to work with what you got. Without a doubt. Well, coach, I want to thank you again for coming on, and just to remind those listening. Uh, they can catch you presenting again this year, April 27th to 28th, right here in Richmond, Virginia, at the 2012 Central Virginia Sport Performance Seminar. Uh, and they can catch all the information that they need on the Oscillatory Method at xlathlete.com. Uh, Coach, thank you very much. It was great. And I look forward to speaking with you again really soon. All right, Coach. Uh, I'll catch up with you. Thanks. All righty. Have a good night. Yep, you too.